0: How will we feed a planet that's hotter, drier, and more crowded than ever? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Technology is changing how we produce food and what we eat. Innovators are trying to reinvent the global food system to be more productive and nutritious.
1: There are very clear benefits. I'm really interested in who's producing the food and how.
0: Twilight Greenaway is a contributing editor with Civil Eats, an online source of news about food, health, and environment. With the world population pushing 9.5 billion by mid-century, UN climate experts predict a two to 6% decline in global crop yields every decade going forward because of climate pressures.
2: That paradox of increasing demand and declining supply presents a real problem.
0: Amanda Little is a journalism professor at Vanderbilt University who also writes for The New Yorker and Bloomberg about energy, food, and climate. Her new book is called The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. I began our conversation on the future of food by asking Amanda about Memphis Meats, a company in Berkeley, California that she writes about in her book.
2: Memphis Meats is producing what are called cell-based meats, Uh, which are meats that are grown um, from cells taken from uh, animals but grown outside the animal. And uh, the cells are given sort of a a very comfortable environment in which to grow in a a bioreactor, which in in lay terms is a very sophisticated crockpot, essentially, and um, grow and grow and grow until they form muscle mass and uh, are blended with connective tissues and fats and essentially a meat product that... Is meat um, just grown uh, separate from from the animal? And I tested a, a cell-based duck breast about nine months ago or so in the Memphis meat laboratory. Uh, but that interested me as part of so the, this growing, um, you know, industry in alternative meats.
0: Because much of the climate conversation really gets down to meat and protein. A lot of it's animal protein, and this lab meat, you know, is one way to kind of in theory, reduce the, the environmental and greenhouse gas impacts of factory farms, uh, the intensive impacts of of industrial production of of animal protein, right? So, uh, there's but there's a lot of big companies. Tyson invested it in uh, in Memphis, Cargill, even Hormel, uh, a maker of Spam, is looking at this kind of thing. Is this where meat is going away from the pasture to the lab?
2: Yeah, actually, I. Got interested in the story in part because I was writing about Tyson for Bloomberg and I found that they were investing in Memphis Meats. Cargill Meats had come in, I think, first and then brought, uh, you know, Tyson came in thereafter. And a number of, you know, sort of more predictable investors had also come in Bill Gates and um, Richard Branson and so on. Um, but I, I thought this was fascinating that the conventional meats industry was investing in sort of disruptive technologies and asked Tom Hayes, who was then the CEO of Tyson why are you going into cultured meats or you know aka cell-based meats or lab meats Um, and they said well, or he said, if you can grow the meat without the animal, why wouldn't we do that? There's a huge, you know, resource advantage for us and obviously ethical advantages to, to growing the meat without the animal. And he said, we see disruption in the auto industry. We see disruption in tobacco. You know, disruption is coming in the meats industry. That fascinated me that this was, you know, so, something that conventional meats were investing. in. Now, granted, it's a small, you know, fraction of what they're investing in conventional production methods, but the Conversation is starting.
0: A lot of that is driven by the ability to lock up intellectual property, which businesses like, investors like to kind of put a moat around their investment, so new invests, new competitors can't come in. Twilight Greenaway, does this idea of of lab meat or industrial uh, does that uh, fascinate or horrify you?
1: A little bit of both, I think. Like a lot of Americans, um, I recently was thinking about this issue actually when the the announcement was made, uh, Tyson. Decided to do an end run. It looked like they were going to be in, you know, really For the most part putting their money into existing companies and then they kind of decided to put their own products out uh, At the time I was thinking about a conversation that had happened years ago about this idea of an organic Twinkie and um, I don't oh, know wait, if any oh, of you remember wait. that
0: organic Twinkie. Yeah, so okay.
1: there was a discussion of you know now that organic is, is having this groundswell what will it mean when there is organic junk food? Basically, there'll be the benefit on the one end, there'll be the, you know, there's a lot to say about changing practices on the land and what organic means in terms of pesticides and other environmental benefits. But on the other hand, you'll still end up with a Twinkie. And I think that uh, that discussion felt very apt when I started to think about cell-based meat because, well, cell-based meat, plant-based meat and the investment and the, huge kind of groundswell around seeing it as uh, the solution. And I think there are obvious benefits. There are also some downsides. And so for me, it feels very similar. Uh, One of the main questions I have is about the ingredients that go into that, particularly the plant-based meat. Uh, Will it be, how will it be raised? Will it be regenerative on a large scale? Uh, They just, I think it was, was it impossible that just came out? declaring their pride at uh, using American genetically modified soy. So I do think that it's very complicated and I'm curious to see how it plays out.
0: So Amanda, yeah, your response. I mean, you know, GMOs. There, there. A lot of pe- people on the left are, are rapidly against them. Other people say, well, you know, th- is there cell editing. There's there's all sorts of techniques here. But really, what we're talking about is kind of the role of innovation in technology and technology in food. Whether food ought to kind of be like our grandparents or or a product that's it's engineered and designed uh, to to address the hunger and climate challenges we're facing.
2: Yeah, and I'm interested to get to the GMO topic. Um, you know, it, with the with the lab-based, uh, or the cell-based meats, it's interesting because some of the claims, I mean, the potential is so exciting that there actually could be health benefits. Memphis is, there are many of these cell-based companies that are emerging, and so Memphis is only one of them. But the, um, Uma Valeti, the founder ha, who is a cardiologist by training, was interested in potentially, you know, the human health benefits of bringing in healthy fats, uh, also addressing some of the contamination problems in meats, um, that this would actually do more than sort of what an organic Twinkie would do. It, It could create a lot more safety, um, for the eaters of the meats and certainly offset, of course, the impacts on the animals themselves. So, in theory, it's really exciting. Certainly, what is the you know medium in which the cells are grown? What is the cost of this from an energy standpoint? How great are the you know potential climate benefits? A lot of that you know we don't yet know, but. Um, in concept it's exciting and this is what's so interesting about a lot of these areas of food tech or what they call climate smart agriculture that are emerging you know the benefits seem to outweigh the risks by a long shot but there it's still we're so early in the phases of a lot of these technologies that um it's really hard to say for sure you know this is a slam dunk
1: and i think it depends a lot on who we're talking about as benefiting right i mean i think there are very clear benefits i'm really interested in who's producing the food and how and I think a lot about rural communities. I think a lot about small and medium scale producers, and I feel like um, that I would like to see that piece of the conversation integrated into the
2: discussion around cellular meat more than it has been. One of the people that got me interested in this was not just Tom Hayes, the Tyson CEO, um, but uh, a farmer who produces meats and on a you know small farm he uses you know managed grazing rotational grazing and and he basically said the challenge is that what i produce on a small scale is not affordable for my neighbors so who am i to begrudge some of these you know sustainable approaches that can produce cheap meat um sustainably you know with with better human health and environmental impacts um if we can't all necessarily go to craft meats what is the solution for a middle and low income meat eater? And so was his interest in, you know, in this as a potential solution for sort of the mass produced meats, not necessarily as an alternative to craft meats, but mm-hmm. a, a, an you know, an, a, yeah, a mass- I think that's that's my prediction is that ultimately this is going
1: to be what's in our fast food. I think there will always be a grass-fed steak available to yeah. the elites.
2: And that's what I think the folks who are in <clears throat> this area are saying too. I mean, they don't see this, you know, completely offsetting. I think actually Pat Brown at of Impossible Foods has said there will be no animal derived meats by 2035 or something. He's made some pretty dramatic claims that um, I don't. His,
0: that's his wish.
2: That's yeah. right. <laughs> I don't know that that is shared by mm-hmm. everyone in the alternative meats industry, but it is pretty extraordinary how far things have come. I mean, to see the Impossible Food product now adopted in Burger Kings and White Castles and Shake Shacks and so on, when three, four years ago people were saying, Will mainstream consumers go for the veggie burger that bleeds with synthetic animal blood? This seems so far fetched. The fact that we're seeing these ideas that had seemed far-fetched get embraced and adopted pretty rapidly is, is surprising to me. Um, again, exactly what the benefits are and how these industries are managed is another question.
0: But Amanda, little you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of the small, uh, you know, I- iconic um, American rancher. Um, if meat is produced in a laboratory owned by a large corporation that is serving institutional shareholders, doesn't that just wipe out? The you know small scale cattle rancher, you know, the no, consolidate so. power and economic power in the industry.
2: I don't think so. I think as Twilight was saying they're different products and so what But,
0: but, but if this is a <laughs> aimed toward the the mass market fast food And yes, the people on the coast can have their grass-fed beef if they continue to eat meat, which is questionable in a hot world, but um, Doesn't that ju- isn't that just going to consolidate power when Cargill can have its own factories? They don't need ranchers when they own the factories producing this meat.
2: Yeah, and I think it's creating a lot of concern for stakeholders in those conventional meat industries I will say that A month after I reported on in Bloomberg on Tyson's decision to get into alternative meats, Tom Hayes, the CEO, uh, resigned. Um, and I'm not saying that it was because of the piece, but I, you know, it's a tough time. Meats, the meat industry has been going through all kinds of price instability related to tariffs and other things. Um, but it's a tough time to be talking about self disruption in an industry that's um, been sort of a v- bit volatile. Um, so yeah, and I think that there's a lot of concern about how it's managed and what it means to control the, you know, have ownership over cells that are grown and all this stuff. I mean, it's a, there are many, many unanswered questions and risks and the, you know, uh, the way that the oversight and the way in which, you know, environmental activists and policymakers, you know, shepherd the growth of these industries um, and make sure that we do this in the right way is essential. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, they're big questions.
0: And Twilight greenery, do we even know the life cycle analysis of lab meat? Is it really less greenhouse gases to produce, uh, you know, fake meat than real meat?
1: Great question. I haven't seen that yet, and I don't think it's out. I mean, we do have some life cycle analysis for plant-based meat. There's been a lot of discussion around that lately. There's also been some new life cycle analysis around pasture that's come out in the last few weeks. They're both from the same third-party organization, Qantas, I think it's called. Neither are peer-reviewed. So... um, there's, there's a lot of fast talk at this moment, but I'm glad you brought up ownership because there were a lot of great things about your book. And one of the questions that kept coming up for me was about the role of technology and what that technology ultimately does. Is it going to feed the system that we have, which is very top down, you know, a few companies own the bulk of it you know, whether we're talking seeds, whether we're talking pesticides, whether we're talking meat. Mm. And so, so many of these startups, their goal is to sell to these big companies, as you mentioned, uh, with Blue River, for instance. But I think it's it's fairly common that that's the business model. So are they feeding into the system that is extremely top-down, or or will there be technology that comes along? And I do think there probably is some now, but will there be some that really can feed into a more democratic, food system that allows for different types of ownership less concentrated ownership and that, that's my big question
0: you're listening to a climate one conversation about the future of food in a hotter drier more crowded world Coming up, we'll hear about expanding the meaning of agriculture and farming.
2: A lot of the people working in the ag space are not hands in the dirt people. You know, they're IT folks, they're mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. There's a much broader definition, and that's both exciting and concerning.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues.
1: You're listening to Climate One, so you realize that it's time to pull every lever we have to solve the climate crisis. Unfortunately, it's easy to overlook the impact that our investments have on the environment. Many investment funds support companies that cause harm to people and the planet. But it doesn't have to be that way. Change Finance offers investments that are fossil fuel free and align with your values without sacrificing returns. Go to change-finance.net slash climate to learn more and start investing today. Change Finance is a registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell any product.
0: You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about feeding a hot, dry, and crowded planet with Amanda Little, professor of journalism at Vanderbilt University and author of the new book, The Fate of Food, and Twilight Greenaway, contributing editor with Civil Eats. I asked Amanda to follow up on what Twilight had mentioned about Blue River technology.
2: Blue River Technologies is a a company based in Sunnyvale, uh, California, and it's a block from Yahoo. Um, It's an AI robotic company that has developed a way of deploying herbicide with sniper-like precision so that this sort of system of cameras attached to the back of a tractor can identify and distinguish between crops and weeds when the weeds are 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 very young can um deploy a concentrated fertilizer or herbicide kill the weed protect the crop keep the chemicals off the crop um, as an alternative to broadcast spraying which we've seen with roundup ready and so on there's huge amounts of herbicides that are um, saturating crops and creating all kinds of um, concern about the public health impacts of those um, chemicals it's a really exciting um technology, in part because this maiden voyage of the, the early tests of these um, robots, they've seen 90% reduction in herbicide applications on the fields in which they're used. Um, they also hope to apply this to fungicides, insecticides, and eventually fertilizers. And what it means is plant-by-plant farming rather than field-by-field farming, so potentially bringing in um, you know, intercropping and more diversity into fields, when the intelligent machines can manage the you know the plants individually, you can move, potentially move beyond monocropping. So all this is great. It's it's elevating the uh, principles of, of sustainable farming and bringing them into you know large scale food production. Um, it would all be great. Uh, I think it was last September. Blue River, I think three or four years into its existence, um, was sold to John Deere for 305. Million, um, and uh, the CEO. I remember was in the midst of reporting this story, and I talked to Jorge Harrod, who's the CEO, and I said, "What you're selling to John Deere? You know, the, one of the oldest brands in ag. This is, you know, part of this trend that's so concerning to so many of us." Um, And he basically said, we need to scale. We need to get these machines into the field. We need to produce them in a sound and reliable way. This can get, you know, our robots into 10,000 distributors globally, like This needs to happen, and the result is, you know, disruption of ag chemicals and the ag chemical industries. Um, So we need the skill. We need the sort of good guys and bad guys to collaborate, right? Um, It doesn't mean that that is disrupting the rise of, um, you know, local food webs and farmers markets and CSAs and um, locally sourced foods. It means maybe this is a way of bringing more intelligent um, practices to industrial AG so I don't know that they're necessarily at odds with each other that you know improving practices in industrial agriculture inherently threatens the diversification that's happening in um, local food webs but it's again really concerning because if you have very expensive, intelligent robots on farms that farmers don't know how to fix um, that, you know, can break down, that can be hacked, aren't I mean, allowed to fix and maybe aren't allowed to <laughs> fix. Right. So, yeah, it's John Deere, it's, it's again, this interesting challenge of sort of risk, benefit, risk, benefit. But certainly the potential benefit of bringing intercropping to, you know, large scale agri- agriculture is I think, important enough that for me it was exciting to get inside there, see how it worked, what it could become. Um, Again, not it has to be tightly, you know, um, regulated and observed. And that's, um, you know, a discussion that needs to happen.
0: And you write about sea uh, and spray, another robotic weed killer and potato, which is thinning lettuce to allow certain uh, lettuces, the stronger lettuce, uh, thrive and survive uh, and uh, killing the weaker lettuce uh, in your uh, chapter called Robocrop. But at Twilight, let's have your take on robots on the farm, whether that's going to kill monoculture or is it they're going to do something else?
1: Well, I mean, we're moving towards automation in so many ways culturally, and I do think that it's happening in food, absolutely. I mean, I'm seeing it, we're seeing it, and it's really right there on the horizon. Um, but I mean, it, it's already the $250,000 John Deere that I rode in a combine a year and a half ago. Um, I got to sit there in an air conditioned space and he let the farmer let me drive it. Just around the corner and into the <laughs> what this giant parking space he'd built in a a barn and you know he could watch a sitcom while while he runs through the <laughs> fields and it's um, it's a very different experience I think than what most people think of as farming um, so I do think there's already been a fair amount of technology you know in play and um, is that
0: sad is that a loss for you
1: I think it's complicated I, I mean I, I'm not. I don't think that I'm as diametrically opposed to Mm -hmm. (laughs) Amanda's take as, as it may seem. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, you brought up diversity and I think rural communities are already emptying out. They've already been emptying out and technology has played a serious role in that and will continue to. And that's, Has been a big focus of mine recently is trying to figure out like what would it take to bring more people back to these places? And when I went to Iowa and spent time with uh, a really Wonderful Innovator named Sarah Carlson who's working with farmers conventional and organic all across the Iowa landscape to um to bring about diversity, as she put it, just to give people permission to plant other things. Because in this part of the country, as I'm sure you know, corn and soy is it. And there are a lot of farms that are corn on corn on corn. They've even cut out the idea of a two-crop rotation. And so um, spending time with her was very uh, enlightening for me as a Bay Area <laughs> you know, food world person. And um, she, at one point when we met, the first time she really leaned over and was like, this is really about bringing people back. Like, this is my community, you know? I, She talked to me about how her high school had consolidated with uh, another high school when she was younger, and how, um, you know, the hospitals in her area had consolidated or shut down, how there is this, this whole world there that's changed for the worse for the most part. And diversity, as she sees it, and I... I was pretty convinced by the end of my time with her, bringing back diversity to crops and bringing animals onto farms and bringing um, cover crops and small grains and essentially shifting the marketplace so that we don't just get corn from one place oats from now oats are in Canada if we can bring oats back to Iowa for instance it would be huge because you could get a three crop rotation going it would actually require a little more labor which might bring back a second generation of farmers so I'm interested in solutions like that as much as I am interested in technology and uh, yeah
0: And Amanda Little, you write that 2% of people in America are involved in producing food from land. There needs to be more. um, Is the industrialization and introduction of robots going to bring more people back to producing food, or is that going to reduce the number of people producing Mm food?
2: Well, great question. I mean, the definition of farmer is definitely expanding. A lot of the people working in the ag space are not hands-in-the-dirt people. You know, they're IT folks, they're mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, they're, um, you know, its a much broader uh, definition. And that's both exciting and concerning. It's certainly exciting to a lot of young people that I interviewed who are um, coming into the ag space because they're interested in, you know, um, engineering and drones, sensors, smart farms, all these things that are post organic um, or, you know, have great potential benefits to human health and the environment, but it's not dirt, you know, hands in the dirt um, I think that there's going to be so much demand from all of us who continue to want to um, support local farms who continue to want to you know See diversity in the farmscape that we're not going to all go to this you know sci-fi You know future of um, you know robots farming food. I think that there, there's a double whammy challenge One is to address and redress all the problems of existing industrial agriculture, and there are so many. Um, The second challenge is to begin to um, prepare for and maybe even preempt um, a lot of the population and environmental pressures that are coming down the line so you know the ipcc the international panel on climate change has predicted that uh we'll see a two to six percent decline in global crop yields every decade going forward because of climate pressures um we also hear from you know the un that we're going to 9.5 billion people by mid-century right so that paradox of increasing demand um and declining supply Presents a real problem. Um, some of these solutions can potentially do both: can help redress the existing problems in industrial agriculture, make it smarter and better, um, and more nimble, and and while also sort of beginning to sort of prepare for the, some of these increasing climate pressures. Um, but I don't think that it, that it's sort of one or the other. It's like, are we going to do you know sustainable, local, organic, small-scale agriculture, or are we going to do? Is it all going to be robots and you know industrial? food production. Um, it's it's got to be both. And to present it as sort of one or the other, I think, is misleading. Um, and I think we totally agree on that.
0: If you're just joining us, we're talking about the future of food with two authors, uh, Amanda Little and Twilight Greenaway from Civil Eats. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, About a decade ago, fruit breeders in Florida noticed that the state's peach crops were not on schedule. They looked into historical data since the 1970s and found that some peach varieties were blooming earlier and earlier, others later and later. The culprit, climate change. Jose Chaparro is a professor of horticultural sciences at the University of Florida in Gainesville. He's in charge of their fruit tree breeding program. We spoke to him about the approach they took to hedge their bets against future climate fluctuations.
3: What we have noticed is that our highest chill peaches, the varieties that require in excess of 350 chill hours, were blooming later and that we were having problems, having a, a consistent yield, and that the lower chill varieties, varieties that only required uh, 150 chill hours, uh, what would be considered to be a subtropical peach, were actually blooming earlier and earlier. In terms of breeding, uh, what we have decided to do is that we've decided to straddle the chilling requirement of North Central Florida. and. We've established two satellite programs, uh, one in Atapolgus, Georgia, three hours northwest of Gainesville, and then we've established a satellite program in Fort Pierce where we barely get 75 chill hours with the idea that regardless of where the trends head long-term, we're selecting germplasm that's divergent and capable of adaptation to different zones. Maybe the optimal location will no longer be in Florida, it'll be in Georgia, or maybe the coastal plain in North Carolina, but there'll be other crops like citrus that will expand north, maybe avocado production in Florida. So there'll be opportunities, other people in other regions of the world are gonna need improved high yielding varieties in order to have viable agriculture. We have to focus. We have to select for adaptation. We have to take advantage of the genetic diversity that exists in nature, and just forge ahead.
0: That's Jose Shaparo, professor of horticultural sciences at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Twilight Greenaway, there's a couple things in there. One is uh, hedging bets. You know, maybe. Florida, maybe Georgia, maybe North Carolina, which, again, gets to kind of the scale. You have to have some scale and money to to do that. And the other part of that is just the adaptation. Well, if we can't grow oranges, we'll grow avocados. So talk to me about the, the resilience and adaptation part that that professor's getting to.
1: Well, I think I mentioned to you when we spoke earlier that I grew up on a farm, and my mother, who still farms in Hawaii, is seeing a lot of what he's talking about there she's
0: a coffee farm (laughs) it's a
1: coffee farm um, but she's also seen all kinds of fruit trees that she planted when she first moved to the property 25 years ago making fruit that didn't like mangoes and coconuts that were coastal much lower elevation fruit suddenly it's showing up further she sort of planted them on a whim and now they're fruiting Uh, so that's happened within my lifetime and I feel like it's a pretty clear message that things are moving fast.
2: Some of what um chaparro and other agronomists are are looking at is how do you you know think about breeding plants with resilience so they can continue to grow in the regions where they have grown for so long right so um some of his research is adapting peach and citrus plants to survive the new normal as he said right so can we continue having the same peaches we know and love um, but with you know new properties um like Drought tolerance, you know, insect resistance for you know migrating insect populations, um, heat tolerance, um, frost tolerance, um, you know, and this is one of the areas of, of focus on, on breeding. I interviewed a farmer in a very different region of uh, Wisconsin, actually. Um, cherry farmers and apple farmers in the Midwest have been dealing with. The seasonal shifts that have been causing all kinds of premature blooming um, and then what they call total kill events where a, a frost will come in April or May at a normal time, the tree will have fully fruited. And then, um, you know, in this case of this one farmer who has about 300 acres of apple trees, he um, had total total kill. So he lost m- more than a million dollars in harvest um, in you know two hours of a freeze over one night in, in early May um, and he had then begun to install frost fans which are these fans that bring warm layers of air down um, into uh, you know from above into the sort of lower areas where the trees are growing um, which was you know many tens of thousands of dollars of investment there were some farmers who are bringing in helicopters to push down this um, this layer of warm air to try to protect these trees from freeze what's um, the carbon
0: impact Yeah, exactly.
2: Right. (laughs) I know. It's like we're trying to mix up this atmosphere in order to deal with these major atmospheric shifts. Um, and it was, you know, totally chilling, and in, 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 pun intended, to um, to see what is happening on the ground. You know, these adaptation efforts. Um, when you can't pick up and move a tree that's been in the ground for 10, 20 years, um, you know, it's 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 very hard to say. Let's just shift north, or you know, um, shift the region. I mean, they're it's hanging on to this, you know, multi-generation farm, and don't you know, don't want to start growing avocados or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So part of it is how do you sort of address the breeding challenges of building resilience into the plants? And part of it is, do we see the regions where plants are grown shifting? And this is particularly true. And I mean, I researched this and areas of Western Africa where they're, you know, having serious difficulty growing um, some indigenous crops because of climate environmental pressures. And again, some of the scientists there are basically saying we want to continue growing heirloom and indigenous crops, but we have to you know, use modern technologies to find ways to build resilience into these crops. Um, So again, it was sort of confounding some of these questions about what's local and traditional and indigenous and what's survivable in the climate era. You're
0: listening to a Climate One conversation about food and agricultural technology in a warmer world. Coming up, We'll hear more about the people working in the fields.
1: You know, it's a deep irony that the folks who are growing our food face some of the biggest risks related to climate change. You know, heat stress and other illnesses caused by long-term exposure to heat.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the future of food with Amanda Little professor of journalism at Vanderbilt University and author of the new book, The Fate of Food, and Twilight Greenaway, contributing editor with Civil Eats. Amid the stories about technology and the business of food, Twilight writes about the people who produce it, including Victor Gutierrez, a 30-year-old farm worker in the Central Valley of California.
1: I worked on a unfortunate story recently about a uh, Soil-borne illness called valley fever that's been around in California and in the southwest for over 100 years. But the increase in dust storms, climate-fueled dust storms, it's gone up something like 240% in the southwest. And um, what that means is everyone in the southwest is at increased risk for this soil-borne it's a fungus that um, once it gets into your lungs, if you if you have a really healthy immune system, most people can fight it off or it might turn into a cold or a flu. But anyone who's at all immune compromised is at risk, really. In fact, sometimes people who aren't even particularly immune compromised seem to get it. So I wrote about Victor Guterres and a, a few other farm workers and farm worker advocates who are really facing the problem head on because they... Um, they face all different kinds of other challenges that can impact the immune system from living in food deserts ironically central the central valley is a really significant food desert um, to lack of clean water also very tied to agriculture due to um, nitrogen use and um, stress and other factors essentially as I came to see it over the course of researching this piece, put farm workers at greater risk, as do um, the fact that they have less access to health care, the fact that they're often living in poverty. So um, it you know, it's a deep irony that that the folks who are growing our food face some of the, the biggest risks related to climate change, not just valley fever, but also, you know, heat stress and other illnesses caused by like long-term exposure to heat.
0: It's a big deal. Yeah. Rec, uh, in 2011, you wrote that uh, so estimated health costs in California of more than $2 billion to treat Valley fever. So this is a uh, big money and something that is, is climate related and often not recognized as a climate impact, but you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's a, a lot of money. Um, I want to talk also about carbon farming. We'd be remiss. We haven't talked a lot about soil yet so far. Uh, carbon farming, the idea that to kind of put carbon, uh, Back in the soil, we basically, the last couple hundred years, we've taken carbon out of the ground, burned it, smoked it, put it up in the air. Now the idea is to put it back in the form of plants and roots stored in the soil. Um, So either one of you can tell me about carbon farming as one of the real bright spots, potentially, if it can scale in the climate equation.
2: One of the... Many areas of carbon farming um, that I looked at or am particularly interested in is no-till and how uh, or or, no-till agriculture, no-till agriculture. So um, the idea is that instead of plowing up the soil every season, you're leaving the crops in ground. You're actually um, letting the agricultural remnants of that crop um, decompose back into the soil, create sort of a carpet on top of the soil, um, planting right into that carpet of old, you know, crop matter and Keeping the soil intact um, And all of the microbiome in that soil and the insects and so forth in that soil Um, The challenge has been that it's very herbicide intensive because you get a lot of weeds that like to grow up in the in the no-till Zones and actually this is one of the interests for the AI robotics folks that you know If we can be very targeted in the way that herbicides are used to address the weed problems in no-till farming It could really dramatically expand um, the use of no-till um, across the board, it's pretty amazing how little expansion there has been of no-till, given how much of an advantage it is from a carbon sequestration standpoint, but also irrigation, because the tilling brings so much moisture out of the soil. It's really more and more costly for um, farmers to replenish that moisture. Um, so it saves quite a bit of money from a water standpoint, irrigation standpoint, and again, from a soil health standpoint. and you know fertilizer input standpoint but it's not growing very quickly because it doesn't you know the look is nice um it's just a departure from the you know for a lot of farmers from the way they've been doing things um but to find ways of incentivizing um no-till of helping to grow that that particular practice among other carbon sequestration practices um is a hugely important area of focus um and if we can do it in ways that are much less herbicide intensive, um, then, you know, it's a no brainer.
0: Twilight Greenaway, uh, North Face has sold a a, 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 Cali wool beanie that they said was climate beneficial. So the idea is that, 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 you know, this can actually uh, help the climate, So tell us about some of the, you know, climate beneficial or, or carbon farming and as well as the sure. efforts in California on healthy soils.
1: Sure. I mean, I, actually, I also spent some time with some no-till guys. I went to a conference where there were hundreds of no-till guys. <laughs> um, and then when they do it in concert with other practices, I do think they are often able to bring down the, the pesticide use as well. When they do it in this kind of regenerative way that brings animals in, that brings cover crops in, um, but California has definitely been a leader, and it's exciting because there are 39 other states. California has a, a healthy soils initiative. They've uh, recently just upped the funding for fairly dramatically, and there are 39 other states where there are healthy soil initiatives on coming up. So that is, that is for me, a really significant uh, positive step. Um, in terms of the beanie, the, the wool, I worked on a story about um, an effort to recognize certain practices on farms in California. And there's an effort uh, to bring particularly people who are doing fiber related farming and in, in livestock that way, but also meat and dairy and um, to really reward them and uh, fund certain efforts. Like for instance, um, I know you've had the Marine carbon project on mm-hmm. as well, but mm-hmm. to bring, Compost at a, a thin layer across some of this um, agricultural land, whether it's for grazing or otherwise, can has been shown to be able to really make a significant difference in terms of carbon drawdown into the soil. So, so that's encouraging, but there really hasn't been enough money put into it yet. And that was what I found when I wrote about it. That it, you know, they keep bumping it up. Gavin Newsom, I think the most recent number I saw might have been 24 million. Don't quote me on that. Um, but a lot of it's, money, but still small it's a drop potatoes. in the bucket because yeah. you know that's so. a few farms, a few loads of compost. Like it, it, goes really fast. So, what really you know, in theory, what needs to happen is a much larger scale.
0: Amanda, Little, I want to ask about some foods that we don't hear a lot about that we may be learning more about in the future as we go into a world of you know a hot world of nine billion people. So they're there Kernza, which Uh, you've written about is it moringa which can um, you know is sometimes called famine food Uh, there's cassava perennials that have all sorts of attributes that can be uh, good sources of of carbohydrates I think most people haven't heard about cassava moringa or kernzo so tell us about some of these foods that might be coming a bigger role in the future
2: yeah so the book is a sort of five-year adventure into the lands and mines and machines working on the future of food. Some of that is, you know, very high tech. And some of those efforts are really um, uh, focused on restoring ancient practices and traditional practices of farming. Uh, You know, I looked at edible insects, um, which are, you know, consumed in many cultures today and have been for thousands of years. Um, and ancient plants and what we can learn from them and the research that's going into you know bringing some um, very nutrient-dense ancient, ancient plants back online. That chapter starts out in Mexico uh, with a farmer who is um, researching moringa. You probably have heard about moringa because it has uh, a lot of traction in uh, health food circles, and you know has uh, incredible nutrient properties. um, And and it's very drought resilient. Uh, The the tree is almost sort of Doctor Seussian in its many uh, benefits and and sort of capabilities, both nutritionally and environmentally. But it's not, uh, you know, it, it hasn't really been you know, picked up in sort of modern food circles beyond, you know, very kind of specific niche um, uh, areas. So this scientist is working on making it easier to grow this food uh, making it easier to harvest it, um, and sort of expanding the um, access to moringa, particularly in dry pro- tropical regions, um, where the, the plant uh, you know is native to, to, to uh, equatorial um, nations, and so it's an interesting area of focus. Kernza is another um, area where uh, w- w- this plant that has very, very deep roots, that's able to, you know, has inherent drought resilience because it's able to tap water um, supply very deep in the soil. Again, it's not as productive as modern wheat by a long shot. So a lot of the breeding research is going into how can we bring sort of the, um, the drought resilience properties of this plant, um, you know, online in a bigger way by you know making it easier to produce. I think it's you know a quarter um, or a third of the um, actual sort of productivity of of modern wheat, um, but again it has so many useful and important sort of attributes that it's very relevant to the discussion. Of climate climate resilient food sources, um, quinoa is another ancient plant that There's a lot of interesting research around how to make that um, adaptable to new um, uh, environments for farming. But you know this is. Even, even algae and duckweeds, and there are all these kinds of interesting areas of focus right now. Um, how much of it will really become accessible to you know, broader um, populations? Um, will we be able to feed more people with less food because it's more nutrient dense? Um, really interesting and important questions. Again, it's really sort of research stage right now, um, but helps sort of inform the bigger conversation
0: want to go to a, a lightning round and ask you some quick questions. I'm going to mention a, a, a food and ask you to say the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, Twilight, greenaway, away, tofu.
1: Um, I mean, tofu has had this kind of interesting history. I think people have really strong feelings about it either way. So. One word
0: or phrase. Okay. Um, <laughs> Amanda Little, GMO corn.
2: Yes. <laughs> it is necessary on some level if, if it has the right genes.
0: Twilight Greenaway, almond milk.
1: Water intensive, but not as much as dairy.
0: Amanda Little, your favorite food cooked by your mother or father.
2: Four cheese lasagna. <laughs>
0: Twilight Greenaway, your least favorite food cooked by your mother or father?
1: Oh, steamed vegetables and brown rice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> also, Twilight Greenaway, your guilty food pleasure?
1: Lamb. I love it. I eat it about once a month because I know the carbon impact.
0: Amanda Little, your least favorite cuisine?
2: I love it all. I really don't. There's, not, there's no food I don't love. <laughs>
0: The answer of a food writer. Um, (laughs) Twilight Greenaway, your favorite cuisine? California. (laughs) Amanda Little, your food habit you'd most like to change?
2: Meat consumption. I have a very fraught love affair with meat. I have tried to be a vegan um, and a vegetarian and every version of that. And uh, I keep going back to the barbecue. (laughs)
0: Confessions of a barbecue lover. Okay. Um, Twilight Greenaway your food habit. You'd most like to change
1: Going to Costco
0: <laughs> All right, let's give them a round of applause for getting through the <laughs> big <laughs> that And a little um, want we wrap up I want to mention um, 3d printing of food perhaps for military rations. I mean, just explain to us, you know, is this where we're going, you know, 3D printing of food?
2: The the short version is at the Natick Research Laboratory in Massachusetts, um, there are researchers um, developing or adapting 3D printers to deposit um, pastes of food, food pastes, it could be a chickpea paste or an avocado paste or uh, nut butter or, or something else, um, into a nugget or a bar um, that is also mixed with um, specialized nutrients that can be you know, specific to the needs of a particular soldier. And this they know from sensors that are testing the, the sweat and blood of the soldiers sending this information wirelessly to the 3D printer which then makes the the bar or nugget of food with that certain cocktail concoction of nutrients that the soldier needs. It is printed out, it's given to a drone, and then it's um, delivered into the field of combat, and there is the the personalized food nugget. Um, And so that seemed to me to be in sort of the category of like post-food future that was very hard for me to imagine inhabiting, Um, again, I'm a a nostalgic eater, you know, like I I I have done, you know, tried out Soylent and and tried by hand at the adult baby formulas that are available on the market. Um, But I much prefer, you know, my mom's rib sticking uh, for cheese lasagna. Um, Food is a proxy for love for for a lot of us. This is how, you know, I relate to this topic. I'm not a great cook, I'm not a farmer, um, but I I care about this issue because as as we all do. And we don't want to see our traditions and our sort of uh, the, the rituals around food destroyed. And something like 3D printing, you know, soylent, et cetera, feels like a threat to that. Um, the argument from many of the soldiers and scientists at the research laboratory was, hey, this is a lot better than an MRE. It's fresher, it's, uh, you know, more nutrient dense, and it's um, going to be preferable to most of the um, soldiers in the field. It was interesting watching this 3D printer named Foodini um, try to print out a um, hummus flatbread with an avocado army star squirted on top of it and the thing kept sort of malfunctioning and getting like clogs and trying to sort of purge the clogs and i mean it was like watching a toddler learn how to you know make sense of anything really it was like learning along the way um again it feels very strange um, and impossible to imagine that this is all a reality um it is uh you know at least in the laboratories in the case of the 3d printed food um but um you know historically over over millennia since essentially the first you know farms you know came to be what was it 10,000 BC something around there um, and the first plow was developed in um, you know roughly six or seven thousand BC this has been a story of you know tools and techniques and new you know implemented technologies along the way we have this is not a new story it's an old story we have been you know the the narrative of we're running out of food we can can't feed humanity, is thousands of years old. And in part, the way we've moved through that story and moved through that process is um, by <clears throat> applying new tools and techniques, um, and good judgment. Uh, so as we move through this phase, it's, I think, you know, one, or, you know, this notion that it's, that it's either we reinvent food or we de-invent food, um, that we, you know, restore the past or we, you know, hurdle into the future, um, is sort of a, 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 a story of false opposites. It's gonna be both, you know. we. Have have to move forward, seeing how we've misapplied technology in the past, and you know that may or may not involve you know 3D printed uh, avocado flatbread. Um, I hope not, but uh, I know that a lot of what I end up eating, um, you know, out of a plastic clamshell, um, is not very high nutrient or good for me or the environment. So uh, there's a lot to fix, but um, uh, for the most part, I'm very hopeful.
0: We've been talking about the future of food in a hot and crowded world with Amanda Little, professor of journalism at Vanderbilt University, and author of the new book, The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World, and Twilight Greenaway, contributing editor with Civil Eats, an online source of news about food, health, and environment. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.